Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and joining me after what can only be described as yet another holiday. Is that hyphenated? No, I've <laughs> I've run it through. Thea Lenarduzzi, Thea, hello. Hello. How was your holiday? It was... Um... It, it was, was a wedding. It was, which more, it was a wedding. It wasn't, it wasn't. It was, well, there was a wedding involved, but it was... It was more. It was much more, more than I thought it was going to be. Oh, in what way? Everything. South Africa? Yeah, Cape Town. And good? Surrounding areas. Yes, and it was very complicated. I, I have too much to process. Ask okay. me again in, in a few weeks' time. Before your next holiday. Before my to, next. If you can to... just catch me before I, I leave ne- my next when's holiday. When's the next one? Is there one in plan at all? Nothing planned at the moment. Really? So you, this you is never is know. Really... I mean, if you challenge me sufficiently, who knows what Who knows what might happen? Who knows where <laughs> I might go? Challenge accepted. <laughs> now, as you all know, we often employ you to do three things. Subscribe to the TLS, subscribe to this podcast and review us on iTunes. So I hope you're doing all three of them. And we do like the reviews. And we've got one here, Thea, which you sent to me. <laughs> It comes from someone known as Fact Pal and is headlined Bad Views on Postmodern Novels. <laughs> and we get one star, which is heartbreaking, and this comment. Generally like the show. Oh, hooray. And format. But get tired of Abel's ill cracks at the postmodern novel. One star revenge attack for Gaddis and Pynchon fans everywhere. What do you make of that fear? Well, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure how fair it is. No, have you? Have you? But have I mean, you... possibly I could have done something to, to defend the postmodern novel more than. More have you? Than have, I have. have you criticised it in the way that I have? I don't think I have. No, no. I don't. Where I do don't you think stand I on would. it? Well, I mean, it completely depends. That's like saying, how do you, where do you stand on the historical novel? The yeah, but I think historical novels can be good, and postmodern novels generally can't. I would disagree with that. Okay. I mean, J.R. For example. He mentions Gaddis. There you go, JR. Yeah. Fantastic. Pynchon. I was talking to George Burridge, who's a big Pynchon fan. But oh, the, the main Pynchon book I like is the least postmodern, Mason and Dixon. Yeah, I haven't read that. It's very good, but it's, yeah. it's actually got a story and characters and stuff like that. <laughs> it's not just a writer writing about sitting in a room and imagining characters in his head. Uh, anyway, what could be more postmodern than reading a postmodern review about this podcast on this podcast? Well, I mean, it could get a whole lot more postmodern. It but, could transpire that this whole podcast, and in fact, you and me are existing only in fact pal's mind 
So in fact, we can't rule there's out. no fact yeah. here at all. No pals. <laughs> Coming up today, there'll be no wibbling about writers who write about writing. So sorry, fact pal, about that. We start with one of the greatest literary achievements in the Western canon, the Odyssey. Why is it so lingering in its influence? National treasure Mary Beard will talk us through it. Shifting focus eastwards, we have two big pieces in the paper about modern India. Neil Mukherjee has written about the caste system and its disgraceful perseverance. He's on the line. And it's been political conference season here in the UK. Who better than professional poker of the political conscience James O'Brien to work out where it's left? Well, whatever the answer to that, James is precisely who we've got. The Odyssey is, as Mary Beard puts it in this week's TLS, a book of a lifetime. For Andre Asiman, meanwhile, the text, first encountered one summer in the form of a gift from his aunt, was something of an omen, representing the first of many odysseys to come. Reflecting now, he says, for 30 years, my life in exile would turn out to be like Odysseus's, marked by one thing, the longing to go back, always to go back, not realising that once back, as happened to the Greek hero from Ithaca, I would be spurred to leave and seek out exile again. Exile has become my home, he says. For Terence Hayes, Homer's epic is, quite simply, the poet's Rosetta Stone. These writers are joined in this week's TLS by a selection of others for a symposium. We've called it Beginning Our Odyssey. Contributors recall their first encounters, commissioned along with a series of other inquiries into and around Homer's best-loved epic, to coincide with a London Literature Festival later this month at the Southbank Centre. There will be Odyssey panels aplenty, culminating in a grand live reading from the Odyssey with a cast of distinguished actors. You may have heard about it on last week's podcast. But for today, we're bringing you riches worthy of a Cyclops' hoard to discuss a character studies of Odysseus, what makes him so compelling to so many, written by the novelist Madeline Miller, a history of retellings of the Odyssey by Simon Goldhill, and a rigorous and much more lively than it sounds assessment of ancient responses to Homer by Peter Toneman. At the helm is, of course, none other than Mary Beard. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Oh, great to be with you. <laughs> um, perhaps, I mean, we've got quite a lot to cover, really, uh, but perhaps before we delve into the rest of it, you could start by telling us, for you, why the Odyssey? Why is it your book of a lifetime? I think it's because it's so very near the beginning of Western literature. And the Iliad is, is almost certainly a little bit older, but it's somehow the, it's the second earliest book of Western literature. And what I've always found so so stunning about it is that it it's born kind of fully formed and sophisticated i mean you sort of imagine that when literature starts it will be simple and it will get complicated but what's great about the odyssey is that underneath what is apparently a reasonably simple tale it's full of awkward questions you know, you know difficult anomalies and sophistication aplenty. So right at the very beginning of our literary tradition, we're being complicated. And I think that's a great message, really. 
And I called it Homer's best loved epic, <laughs> which puts the Iliad somewhere, you know, pro- pro- well, in second place. <laughs> um, <but laughs> It'd be tough if, if it <laughs> fell out the top two, I think, wouldn't it? <laughs> but um, no, I was thinking, as it comes number 10, in there's a, the BBC did a survey of, I think it was the, the best loved stories of all time. 100 stories that shaped the world. That's it, and it came in at, at number 10, I oh, think, sorry. which is a bit, a bit sad. But um, <laughs> the Odyssey does trump the Iliad in terms of, of, of public affection and pop cultural clout as well. Like, why... Why is that? Is it its complicatedness? Uh, the Iliad is also extremely complicated. Uh, and I think that um, there's a, a sense in which I think some of my classical colleagues would say that the Iliad was a yet more sophisticated work of literature. And uh, it, used to, it used to be said that the Odyssey was for the girls. Um, <laughs> of course, we don't say that now. Um, <laughs> is that um, true? Did people really say that? Yes. Woman's poem. Well, interesting <laughs> when we consider all the all the... You know, the, the recent, the fact that it has just been translated by um, yeah. the first translator, British translator. But his yeah. central figure is very male, isn't it? I mean, he, he's yeah. basically a man who wanders around the place shagging quite he's a lot. He's a very I flawed mean, male. It, it's a pretty male poem in I that sense. I think that when people used to say this was a poem for the women, they meant it was a little bit simpler. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think there is a case, I and mean, there is a sense. I mean, the Iliad has an enormous kind of... Uh, it's a wellspring of tragedy, really. But I, I think for the average reader, there is much more just apparently superficial, superficially at least, fighting. You know, there are people getting skewered on spears all over the place. And the second book of the Iliad, once you, you know, you start book one, uh, it's kind of exciting. There's the, we're at Troy and there's a plague and oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And then the second book basically is a list of ships. And you, you have to give people a lot more help I think when they get into the Iliad, I think it reward. Yeah, I think your effort is rewarded, but you do need more help. Whereas I think that pretty well anyone can pick up the Odyssey um, in any modern translation and really enjoy it. And that's harder with the Iliad. It's funny you say that. Cause, um, I've just made a, a program for Front Row Mary about reading and mental health, and I went to a mental health trust in Birmingham and I met a guy, and he was saying he was in. A hospital ward, he has an acute mental health problems, and he saw a copy of the Odyssey. Yeah. And he said that was about Odysseus trying to get home, and he'd yeah. spent the last 10 years of his life trying to get home to Birmingham, being homeless, and uh, having all sorts of difficulties. And he sat down in this ward filled with noise and uh, problems and read the Odyssey, yeah. and it gave him a, a line into reading generally, sort of. A, yeah. and, and that strikes me as a something about the Odyssey, which isn't true of the Iliad, but it's still, at one level, a modern story about people longing for home or belonging or love or all sorts of things like that. Yeah, it's, it's getting home. It's what stops you getting home. It's how you eventually manage to get home. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a kind of ancient road movie in the most sophisticated yeah. way possible, I think. So, so yes, I, absolutely. And I, I think you have a sense of... This real journey, this literal journey, also being a psychological journey. So, yeah. Part part of the um, the modern attraction seems to come it, weirdly in spite of all the the sea monsters and so on from the perceived reality of it, doesn't it? And it, at the centre of this, um, as Madeline Miller points out in in her piece, is is the depths of Odysseus himself. Um, do you, do you agree with her that he is perhaps unique in uh, uniquely in ancient literature fitted to our, our modern sensibilities? I think I could think of some other characters who were also who very much speak to the modern world, 
But I think, you know, I think she's got a really important point there that that you pick up this Greek epic. You, what do you expect if you don't know much about Homer, if you pick it off the shelf? You sort of expect a hero. You know, this is about heroic literature. You, and you expect when we say hero uh, and we think about antiquity, we kind of think of somebody who is good, brave, virtuous, decisive, responsible, etc., etc. And, of course, you find a hero, like all the best heroes, to be honest, who is complicated and difficult and behaves badly. And, you know, you're never quite certain that you can be 100% um, on Odysseus's side, and and the recent translation by Emily Wilson, she tries to capture that at the very beginning because, and it's a much debated translation, but I think it's in some ways very helpful. She quotes Homer as saying, "He's a complicated man, polytropon. He is a complicated man," and so you find that you're engaged with him, and yet also distant from him. It's an awkward story, as well as being, you know, ultimately a kind of comforting one. Well, from our reception of Odysseus to our reception, or the ancient reception of Homer himself, there's a piece by Peter Toneman uh, reviewing a work by Richard Hunter on the ancient reception of Homer's epics. What do we learn from that? Does, does Hunter agree with Plato that Homer's work influenced young people's behaviour for the, for the worse? <laughs> uh, not exactly. He's a professor of Greek. Right? <laughs> that would be bold, <laughs> wouldn't it? <Yeah. laughs> that would be a counter advert. Uh, what I think Hunter does, uh, though, is I mean, he 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 shows us that whether or not you know Homer is, really is the Greek Bible. That's what people have often said. And he examines that that phrase and. Uh, you know, says, so look, that's all a bit oversimplifying. But in a sense, what comes out of his book for me is that you couldn't be a literate Greek person. Wherever you were, however far from the, uh, you know, the, the traditional and famous sites of classical Greek culture, you couldn't be it without thinking about your world through Homer. And that seems to be the important thing. You find it on you know, tombstones in bywaters of the of the classical world. You know, everybody is engaged with rethinking Homer. It gives people a template against which to kick sometimes, as in a sense you find the, the classical tragedians doing partly because they you know, they do um, make Odysseus seem much nastier than perhaps Homer does. But he goes much further down to people who, you know, really we only see at the, uh, only, we have only glimpses of on quoting, quoting Homer on their tombstone, that kind of thing. And I think it's, the point is that we're seeing, that you can't understand the classical world or what they thought about things unless you see what they're doing with Homer. It's the essential text. I do like the idea of them modelling their drinking parties on. <laughs> on it, no, and it's not always serious. I mean, you know, we when you know when we we think about these influential texts, you know, we tend to be a bit too high-minded sometimes. Because there's lots of high-minded stuff here. Peter Tournament doesn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> but there's very, you know, it's just like you know people joked about the Bible. You know, if you're thinking about you know medieval and later Europe, and you know it's providing a framework for fun. It's providing a framework for rethinking hard philosophy, for wondering what poetry is about, you know, and for having a few good jokes. 
And I think this is Peter Toneman's question, which isn't necessarily satisfactorily answered by the Richard Hunter book. It's almost impossible to believe these two great poems can exist in antiquity that dominate everything. And that suggests such a level of sophistication in terms of whoever was reciting and coming up with them. And they're the only ones that last and survive. Uh, Is it implausible to believe that Homer was such a huge figure if indeed was one person? Um, Why are there not more examples of this? Well, I think that goes to the kind of the absolute heart of um, how ancient culture operates, really. Um, And I think that, you see, I wouldn't put it quite that way. I would say Homer or the Homeric epics, in a way, let's say, they they kickstart a whole a whole tradition of Greek and later um, Roman literature, um, which is impossible to conceive of without. But is it without Homer? But at the same time, it's also doing different things, being extremely adventurous. It's like, you know, saying all the philosophies, a footnote to Plato. It's very much, you know, all of literature is a footnote to Homer. But it's still prompting people to really go beyond. And I think, you know, the, the classic example of that would be Virgil. Uh, and OK, we've moved to Latin. But Virgil's Aeneid starts, Arma virumque cano, arms and the man. I sing. And that has become almost a kind of cliche, really, of classical quotation, arms the man, I think. Another RTLS writer, Llewellyn Morgan, has pointed out, you know, this is not only saying, I am going to create an epic which has armour, which is like arms, weapons, like the Iliad, but I'm also going to create an epic which is uh, about the man, of the hero, Odysseus. Right. What he's saying, though, in, in putting those two together is a kind of worthy of, of the ancient rap artist. He's being absolutely in your face saying, look, Homer's greatest poet ever. And do you know what? I'm doing his, both his epics in the same poem. Up yours. Get that. <laughs> right. Now, at that point, you know, it's, it's, it's very, you know, what we're seeing in Virgil is um, someone whose uh, who's creativity is in dialogue with Homer, but is actually rivalrous, going beyond, but it's impossible to think of it without Homer. But Virgil is, if you think about Virgil, there are lots of other Latin authors of a similar time or just later time who you would immediately trot out as as um, in the ballpark of the conversation about Roman literature. What seems so striking about Homer is not only does this stuff come born fully formed, this tremendously sophisticated um, work that you talk about, there appears to be no, no one else doing it or well, no one else doing it in the same way. Well, there's no one else doing it for a bit and there's no one else doing it in the same genre for a bit. Um, it would be a very big question uh, as to how far Homer simply capped all the other things at the time. I mean, yeah. do we imagine that people in the 8th century only listened to Homeric tales? Well, no, probably it's all much more varied and quite how it took the form that it took in our text is one of the big unanswered questions. And there would be some people, I think perhaps many, who would say that, yeah, the the processes of composition go back into the 8th century. It is extraordinary that we're sitting in... in 2018, <laughs> talking about. I, I was trying to think of, we're not in the same place, obviously, Mary, you, you made there, but we are sitting in England in 2018, 
debating these texts that are immediately knowable to almost everybody still. Uh, and yet we can't trace the direct lineage back to a person or, or people. Right. It, is, it, is, it, is, it is an extraordinary situation that these two poems have lingered and lasted the way that they have. Yeah, and you know, and that's in, in some ways why I'm in my job, really, isn't it? Because um, the, the the processes of trying to understand it, trying to understand, for example, how the text of it was established, and literally who read it, and what its relationship was with um, any quotes, I'm putting this in about triple quotation marks, any real events. I mean, why do we have the site of Troy excavated by Schliemann in the 19th century and still a major tourist site? It's because that was his response to the Homeric epic. So I want to go and find out where Troy was. So it's, it's the kind of the richness and the diversity of the questions that they prompt that make them so special too. Well, we haven't had time, sadly, to go into Simon Goldhill's piece, but he does have an interesting theory, so people will have to read uh, the, the paper for that's, that. That's he says, good well, that he works. says, <laughs> Don't ruin it we, all, we all get the Homer we deserve, which is a very intriguing idea. That's right. Simon Goldhill always has interesting theories. Exactly. But alas, not no time for this, for this no, on no the podcast. No time for so theories on this paper. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mary Bird, thanks for joining us. Thanks. I should say, listeners will find all of these pieces and details about the events on the South Bank Centre's website as well. And the pieces we've discussed are, as I said, in the paper and online. But you might also want to scroll down your podcast feed back to May this year to listen to the interview that Lucy Dallas did with Madeleine Miller, because that's a great one. Not that we're repeating ourselves. Not that we're repeating ourselves, or in any attempt trying to underline how joined up our thinking is. No, somewhere between the two. (laughs) Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. (laughs) 
Neil Mukherjee begins his essay in the TLS this week like this. It's difficult to think of a model of systematised hierarchy as tenacious and barbaric as caste. He's talking about the Hindu principle of caste, from the Brahmins at the top to the Dalits or the untouchables, literally the crushed at the bottom. The latter make up about one in six of the population, around 220 million people. Neil has reviewed Sujatha Gidler's book Ants Among the Elephants, an untouchable family in the making of modern India, which he calls incendiary. In it, it has this passage about those unfortunates literally forced to carry human shit for a living. Neil quoted at length, so I'll try and quote a bit of it, which goes like this. They fill their palm leaf baskets with excrement and carry it off on their heads five, six miles to some place on the outskirts of town where they're allowed to dispose of it. Nearly all of these workers are women. They don't know what gloves are, let alone have them. When their baskets start to leak, the shit drips down their faces. In the rainy season, the filth runs all over these people, onto their hair, into their eyes, their noses, their mouths. Tuberculosis and other infectious diseases are endemic among them. Caste discrimination is illegal by the Constitution of India, but happens nevertheless. It's a shocking thing to think of in a modern world, in a country seemingly at the advance of modernity in lots of other respects. Neil is on the line to tell us more. Neil, hello. Hello. Um, How do you explain the origins of the caste system uh, in India? Where does it come from? People would tell you that it's a kind of uh, thing that uh, came with the Aryans to India. Um, It started off as a division of labor, they'll tell you, but I I think I've heard other anthropological explanations for caste. But one thing that happens with caste is that caste has never been abolished and it is it is unlikely to be and one reason for that it is like you know the pernicious internalization of caste by people who practice it i mean it it, it is a practice i i have a little anecdote to tell you here uh, my brother and sister-in-law live in bombay uh, part of the time and i go and visit them once a year and one day the man who comes around collecting the washed laundry of all these middle class hounds which he then takes away and then irons them himself and then brings it back this is his way of making a living he came in one afternoon he was sweating and he would not step over the threshold and i gave him a glass of water which he did not ask for and he reached his hand out and then he pulled his hand back again and i said you want this glass of water, you're, you're sweating, you're hot, you're thirsty. And he said, if I take the glass of water from your hand now, you're a Brahmin, I will be atoning for my sins for many, many lives in the future. It was like a slap to the face. Just, and, by, touching, and just by touching you? By accepting the glass of water from me, because, you know, uh, um, I, he can't, he considers me upper caste. And he's from the lower caste, so he cannot accept water from me. So uh, no amount of con- constitutional illegality will, will make caste go away in, in, in India, I feel. Although I, I take hope from the fact that there is a much more widespread conversation about caste going on in India now. And I mean, although in you know in the time that I was growing up in India in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, uh, I mean, we all read a lot of books on caste. There was there was an immense amount of literature on caste. But now we, what we are seeing now, is actually the the much needed rebellion. Uh, uh, and the discourse coming out of people who are on, who have always been on the lower rungs of the caste system, and 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 that is wonderful. And I think Sujata Gidla's book is one of those books. She is an untouchable, or she was considered an untouchable in India. 
And that 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 pushback, as you say, that sort of that has to come from within the country. I mean, has has there what has there been in terms of international pressure in, on on this? I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking in comparison to say South Africa, where obviously it was different, but apartheid did attract scrutiny and sanction, albeit insufficient. Because apartheid was sort of caught up in a much more international web, whereas caste is very much a, like a pan-Indian problem, but but contained within its within its borders. So it is up to the democratic government of a country to institute policies in order to get rid of the caste. And you, you know, all those policies are in place, but in, in a country like India, policy is one thing, and enforcement of policy is another. You know, I often think that policy needs to take the 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 first step sometimes. I mean, if you leave everything up to a certain kind of democratic process, I feel, you know, so many people in Britain would like hanging brought back. If you left yeah. it entirely to a referendum, I think we would go down the wrong route. So I mm. think it's good that, you know, sometimes the state makes a certain decision which is progressive and then it is enforced top down. With caste, it is very difficult to do. As I said, you know, people have internalized over the centuries notions of caste. Then, you know, in the essay, I talk about the Foucauldian notion of power. And I say, you know, power is never a top down thing. It circulates among the people who are at the receiving end of power. Uh, and, you know, Gidla is very clear-eyed about this. You know, her 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 mother, who had such an oppressed life, it breaks your heart to read about her, mother life in her, about her mother's life in her book, but her mother almost had a certain kind of fetishization of upper-caste men, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and you think, you are the first person who should be rebelling against these people, but somehow, I mean, you know, she did. All her life she was a rebel, and she she was ground down by it. But at the same time, there was a corner in her mind where she could not help but look up to upper caste men. There, there, there's a particular teacher of hers, her history teacher in school, who bullied her. But, you know, she always said to herself, oh, maybe I was not good enough. This is what caste does, I feel. It actually works not by a top-down order, but it actually crushes people's wills and, and their and their capacities. I suppose that's that's a large part of what seems to make no sense for a country that as as Stig said is in, in many ways at the forefront of, of modernity increasingly so. It doesn't make sense to not want to make the best of all of the citizens. Well, India seems to be a very strange country that way. I feel, you know, it, it's with one foot, it's it's in the modern world and with the other foot, it's in the dark ages, I feel. And this is the defining tension of India, I feel, that, that battle between tradition and caste is seen as something traditional and modernity. Um, and I think modernity defines itself in some ways by pushing back and its resistance against these traditional things. And, and, and you know, this, this, this this is happening, but there is also a counter pushback. You know, uh, so so when in the early 90s, uh, the affirmative action, or the very late 89 or 90, I'm thinking, when a very radical affirmative action program was passed by the VP Singh government, the pushback against it was just astonishing, astonishing. And even now, the way that the Dalits and lower caste people encounter hostility and resistance and and now with you know social media just simple maligning and bullying because they are asking for their rights you know the 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 understanding of course is you're hardly human how can you talk about rights but i'm i i i am slightly hopeful that because i mean i have never seen this uh, um how, how should i put it an an aggregation of so many 
levels of resistance and 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 such a broad spectrum of resistance from the Dalits themselves. I mean, you know, they they are not going to put up with this any longer. And I, I see a certain kind of empowerment going on actually, and and, and that that gives me some hope. And is that is that why this book is this an important book in that sense, Neil? Because you have I, to articulate I, yes, these yes, feelings. Yes, it's it's an it's an extraordinary book. I feel because you know we we have got in the last twenty or thirty years we have actually got Dalit accounts of 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 what it is to grow up uh, uh, or be a Dalit in India. So this book fits into that that category. It's it's an it's a new category actually. And it it, it, it it has not obtained in the last like fifty years, for example, but last twenty or thirty years, I feel this 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 has been happening slowly. The other thing that makes the book interesting is it's written in English. And most of the Dalit accounts that we have got from Dalit writers has been in vernacular Indian languages. And growing up in India, you're exposed to literature about caste all the time, all the time. But this is the first time, or maybe one of the very first times, that, that it's been written in English for a wider non-Indian readership as well. And, you know, Sajata Gidla lives in New York. She's a conductor on the New York subway. And um, the other very interesting fact about the book, and this, uh, this, this, I think, is something very original. It's actually an oral history of South Indian Maoism. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it's it's a history of her uncle, uh, Satyam, who was a Maoist guerrilla. They were called Naxalites at the time. And um, th- this is something that has not been advertised in the uh, jacket flap of the book because I feel it's it might be thought of as a bit of a sort of recherche territory. But uh, I, I I find this uh, articulation of resistance, although it was not against caste resistance, which makes the book even more interesting. They, 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 these these are the unique features of the book for me. She's a New York subway conductor, you said. She is yes. So she trained as an engineer in 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 India. Um, and, you know, in India, education, very touchingly, is a way out of the hell that you're born into. This does not obtain, this, this model does not obtain in the West. If you study and do well, there is a possibility that you can escape your lot or, or, or you can better your lot. Um, she studied engineering in a regional engineering college in Warangal in, in Andhra Pradesh. And then she came to the U.S. in the late 80s I'm thinking as a as a data entry person and then she moved from there to becoming a subway conductor I think she lost a job in data entry after one of the financial crashes uh, and yes and and then she was a subway conductor and I think she's also a union leader well what an extraordinary story uh, Neil and thank you so much for, for for joining us today thank you very much thank you it is a slightly mind the numbers two hundred million and I kind of yeah I mean, you've heard Brahmin caste yeah yeah and I'd have thought oh it's the Victorian it's, yeah you know nineteenth century stuff well that's why I was wondering about international pressure because it's it, you know yes a country has to sort out its own problems but you would think there'd be a humanitarian um, impulse yeah because it just it just doesn't seem okay yeah. <laughs> extraordinary extraordinary stuff. Britain voted for Brexit in May 2016. A little over a year later, our country had a general election. Brexit is set formally to take place in March 2019. So all that decision-making, there must be some real political clarity now, right? 
wrong. The country remains bathed in a noxious sweat of incompetence and indecision, and it remains largely divided, a big chunk willing to vote for Corbyn and a big chunk against him, a big chunk still wedded to Brexit and a big chunk angry about that. In the last month, we saw three party political conferences, although you probably only remember two, what with the Lib Democrat shindig passing unnoticed even to its own members. What did we learn? Well, professional face palmer and LBC broadcaster James O'Brien, soon to be published author of the modestly titled book How to Be Right, joins us now. James, hello. Hello. How to be right in a world gone wrong. It is qualified. I I did see that and then I mischievously deliberately didn't say the second half. Uh, Shall we begin by dismissing the Lib Dems? Um, Yeah, bless them. (laughs) What's going on there? Because why, why, at one level, I remember after Brexit having a debate with people saying, well, there's 48% of people who now vote Lib Dem, and that's just not happened to a considerable At extent. All. Yeah. You, you got that little um, by-election in Richmond, that brief support that's for your theory, yeah. when I probably would have agreed with you. Um, I, I think leadership is a problem. Tim Farron was gloriously ineffective, and then it turned out that he held some fairly... Um, Illiberal. Uh, illiberal views about uh, gay marriage and, 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 well, homosexuality in general, of course. Then Vince comes back, and... Well, he looks like a man who's already announced his imminent retirement, and he is a man who's already announced his imminent retirement. So the idea of him engaging a a, a disaffected constituency is is optimistic at the very least. And there's still, among the Corbyn-supporting Labour contingency, there's especially the younger voters, there's an astonishing amount of bitterness still directed at the Liberal Democrats for going into coalition. Now, not, not just tuition fees, but for going into coalition at all. So I, I suspect they've got... Unless something remarkable happens, they, they've got at least a generation of still having to, to take responsibility for austerity and, and universal credit and things that did actually happen on their watch. And the argument, I mean, one argument was always that there's this kind of a Macron is possible in this country. Yes. Uh, and that Macron would kind of have to come from a Lib Dem or a kind of new version of the Lib Dems. But that doesn't hugely feel likely either. I mean, it's very hard to sort of say, well, look, it happened in France, so it could happen here. I I I, th- I think it could happen. Um, I I worry slightly that you wouldn't get the media wind in your sails that you'd need if you were coming from a liberal position. I I, I could be wrong about this. Um, in contrast to the title of my book, but that's a better title. I might be wrong. That's the sequel. That's the sequel. I could be wrong. I, 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 I worry that the TV and radio market at the moment is, is dominated by people who provide a lot more heat than light. So I, I don't know if someone red, relatively moderate and modest with, 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 a, with the right message would get the promotion that they needed. But yes, I think part of the problem with attempts to set up a third party or fourth party is, is that the Liberal Democrats are already there and all the bodies, all the personnel that suggest themselves as potential leaders are, are soiled goods. Should we go to Labour then? We'll come to the Tories, I think, probably yes. at the end. Um, do you buy the idea now that Corbyn <coughs> is a prime minister in waiting? Yeah, I do. He looks like one for the. Well, he looks more like one than he ever has done before. Really? I think they believe it, um, which is uh, arguably a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? They, they actually believe it now. The question of whether or not they can make the needle move on the polls. I mean, what's dispiriting for people who are largely homeless at the moment is is the sense that if you, if you lean slightly to the left, you don't really credit the notion of, of someone not 
being 20 points ahead of this government. It's the worst in living memory. So there's that problem. And that speaks to the possibility that he's never going to persuade the unpersuaded. But their tactic is clearly to keep feeding the base. And um, although they're obviously politicians of very different hue, that's the tactic Donald Trump employed and it worked for him. Just keep feeding the base. And, and that is what they're doing. They don't care about anybody else. They don't care about my listeners. Don't care about your readers. Keep feeding the base. Use the Internet and, and, and very cleverly targeted and um, algorithmized social media to, to do it. And then hopefully start picking up. I think the crucial constituency for Corbyn are the people who've spent the last 10 years blaming their ills on immigration and Brussels. And if he can persuade them that actually it was never immigration or Brussels, it was exploitative um, employers, toxic capitalism, uh, excessive profiteering all along, then he's actually got a chance, uh, the, the so-called left behind. But if you look at, say, Scotland, I always think Scotland is a real yes. place where that should be happening. You know, you've got Scotland, a huge fatigue with the SNP because it's been in power forever and ever and ever. You've got a kind of a resurgent Tory party there, but there's a why Corbyn's brand of socialism, it's a left wing country in lots of respects, has been for some time. Why is that not better there? Because there's what, 30 seats there that could swing, in which case then you're in the realm of majorities it again. Changes if you, everything, changes everything. But, what, I, but what, that's not working. So that seems to be the check on this, this optimism, I think, a bit. The check on everything is the personality, not the policies. So uh, increasingly you find angry people who are utterly persuaded of Jeremy Corbyn's brilliance um, pointing out that you you support a lot of the policies or the principles that he ostensibly represents. Why can't you support him? To which the answer is probably based on trust, even more than competence. I, I think a lot of the, the, the double dealing and the, and the bullet dodging with regard to the anti-Semitism and the wreath laying and the previous associations and the, and the curious... Um, media uh, contracts uh, make people think he's untrustworthy. And that, of course, is, is like garlic to a vampire for a Jeremy Corbyn fan. Theresa May and the, um, and the Tories, though, clearly clearly see him as a threat. I think yeah. you, you said um, Corbyn received more name checks in Theresa May's speech than anyone else. Yes, I did. I think I even checked that before I wrote it. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> steady, steady. <laughs> the, um, the, 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 the point is the doubly so. I mean, they, they believe it, which makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Tories believe it, which adds to their sense that, that, that they can do it. It depends upon calamity. This is, this is the, the point I also make in that, that Jeremy Corbyn's best chance of becoming Prime Minister is for Brexit to go as badly as it possibly can so that again speaks to the issue of trust because by digging an ever deeper hole for the country in the hope of finally getting your hands on the spade you um i don't know you're, you're, you're playing very fast and loose with precisely the fortunes and the individuals that you're claiming to represent more effectively than anybody else does well they're kind of they're kind of forced to have no policy on bricks and i i thought that their conference really showed that up because mm. he effectively said that, that thing we said, oh, thanks, in his speech he sort of said, uh, and our policy is to keep as many things on the table as possible. Yeah. Thanks, Keir. Well, that's yeah. not a policy, is <laughs> no, it? No. That's an avoidance of a policy. Yeah, but is it effective? I think it might be. I, I Because, you know, the minute you nail your colours to a mast, you have the people who are favouring all the other masts at your throat. And he's he's kind of managing at the moment to to keep all of the criticism at bay. And the minute you commit to anything, and Theresa May is the polar opposite example of this, isn't she? Because every time she commits to something, she gets torn to shreds. Yeah. So Jeremy Corbyn, I don't know. Arguably, it's been quite... 
it's not very good for the country. Again, it's very good perhaps for Jeremy Corbyn's prospects of becoming Prime Minister to have, have not commit to anything. Remember that quote never that a lot of Labour people just shared on, on social media, never interrupt your enemy when it's making a mistake. Yeah. Which I, you perhaps should interrupt your enemy when it's making a mistake when that mistake can cripple the country which you're supposed to represent. I, I, I would very much agree with you on that. I think it was Barry Gardner who punted that around uh, first on social media and, and you know, if, if the mistake is to is to essentially compromise the wealth and status and safety and security of the entire country, then I don't know what you are supposed to do if not interrupt them. Because otherwise you're complicit, aren't you? Which is the good thing, thing he's going to have to deal with at some point. I mean, th- th- it seems like the policy of all politicians is to kick the can down the road. And at some point that road is going to end for everybody, isn't uh, it? Yeah, and of course the, the kicking of the can down the road is, is enabled entirely by the, 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 the shifting from one ludicrously hollow soundbite to another so you know what began with brexit means brexit means we don't actually have to tell you what brexit means for a while the will of the people leave means leave all of these utterly fatuous slogans um but then they'll come out with another one and then when the slogans don't work anymore they come out with a with a with a dissembling claim like the irish border is a red herring that's the sound of the cat being the, the, the can being kicked down the road again. And, or, or that austerity is over. Well, that's the third time she's said it by my <laughs> reckoning. So so again, that's uh, that's more of a dead cat than a can being kicked down the road. I think it's very important that we clarify our metaphors here. That's The, the, the austerity is over is a dead cat. The, the, the notion that Corbyn has got anything up his sleeve that would put him in a stronger position than Theresa May on Brexit specifically is is clearly bogus. Do you feel sorry for her? James? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sure you I have, don't. No, I have done in the past, and I've been um, rightly taken to task for it because I I think this is what I uh, what, what what I call in my book a form of benign chauvinism because because of the way I was raised and because of my mother, I, I think I look at female politicians differently from how I look at male politicians, and I think that's patriarchal and I think it's wrong. So whenever I find myself teetering upon the brink of feeling sorry for her, I, I just go and swat up on things like the, the go-home vans and, and Windrush and the Citizens of Nowhere lines, and I find my sympathies very rapidly dissipate. But I suppose there's an argument if you leave aside gender yes there is a certain aspect of if i were her i wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if i you know she's she's a certain age she's got yes. a, seems to have a happy existence in terms of her personal life with her husband yes. if that was a man if that were me for example it's not the pressure just the, the temptation would be to why am i doing this i need to walk away from this and, this is bad and that's the closest one can come to to to, to admi- admiring is that the presumption in the absence of any other explanation that she must be acting out of a sense of duty and perhaps a consciousness of just how bad and how damaging it would be if the likes of of Rhys Mogg and the ERG and, and that shower were to ever end up with their hands on the actual steering wheel. Yeah, well, especially Boris Johnson. And, you know, one would hesitate to suggest that his bolt finally seems to have been shot on, on, on this occasion, but he certainly came away from conference a hell of a lot less shiny than he was expecting to. Do you think he went into that thinking he's going to be heralded as yeah. a messiah and lots of people thought, actually, we'd rather stick with Theresa May? Yeah, I do. I, th- I think I think it's not never the final roll of the dice with him because it's it's always only about him. But I do think that he saw this as a as an opportunity for the, the sort of hardening of resolve to, to make some sort of leadership election and or general election a lot more likely. And, and she came away, well, dancing. Sorry. Oh God! I mean, that Sorry. was just—that <laughs> was just terrible. I think the dancing I is the best thing that's it. happened to her in the last two it's years. Completely humanised her. Yeah, and just, I, I said at the time the African, the, the actually original dance yeah. was the because everyone has been forced no, no, to dance. I, unfortunately, I don't mean that 
specifically I mean I mean the conference entrance. Yeah. I was so blissfully unaware of it until I, I finally got some data roaming or something while I was away and I and, and I saw that and it was just just but abysmal. Again, I but, just hate oh. but, but when you're so obsessed with presentation and optics and politics is, is you know, not 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 benefited from this desperate fear of looking silly. I think someone who is quite happy to look silly, um, does actually benefit I, I mean I winced I cringed I was all over the place when it actually happened but in retrospect I, I would even reach for the word endearing I suppose it just makes me very angry because this isn't a laughing matter none of this is a laughing matter and I can't no. I can't I can't bear the, the lightness of it no, I, I well, that, no, that's, I that's an excellent point, but it's a conference speech, isn't it? I know. So she's got to. Um, if Jeremy Corbyn had moonwalked on, I think that would have been the best. <laughs> that would have been a whole different. Exactly. That. <laughs> that's next year. Oh God! And there will be a next year. Uh, as you're always right, James. Yeah, sure and you know how to be right. Yeah. Uh, does Brexit happen in March? That, that, this is where I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I reached about a month ago for no deal or no Brexit being the most likely culminations I, I think i'd abandon that position now and uh, i kind of think it has to happen doesn't it i, I, I can't something has to happen i can't the say how it is, doesn't happen and whatever happens will will delight precisely nobody but will it be enough to assuage the fears of the very very pro-brexit people who fear that the whole prize might be slipping out of reach? Will it be enough to assuage the fears of the pro-Remain people who fear that Brexit could be a million times worse than it needs yeah. to be? And, and will it be enough to see Theresa May hang on to power for long enough to have any control whatsoever over what Brexit eventually becomes? Because to answer your question, probably it will happen, but it will happen in one of two ways. It will happen in a way that is Brexit in name only, or, or it will happen in a way that, that ties us up in knots for, for generations to come before we go begging back for readmission under terms that would include Schengen and the single currency. My, my feeling's always been that this is Britain uh, and we will shambolically end up having wasted an inordinate yeah. amount of time and energy yep. into something slightly worse than we had before. Yeah, but well, not... and, and do you know what the funniest thing about that is? That, for me, is pretty close to the best-case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we shall see, uh, James. We will test you on your predictions and everything because oh. you are always right. No, uh, stop that! I'm not always right. If you'd actually read the book, and I appreciate I haven't sent you a copy. No, yet, you could have. Yeah, you could have sent do, it. If I only, do, if only I do you knew someone who edited a literary the journal. It's in the post. The three most <laughs> important and underused words in the English language, a recurring theme in the book, are "I don't know." Yeah. Well, that's often, and that's often the most honest thing anyone can ever say, I suspect. Vanishingly rare. Vanishingly rare. James O'Brien, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Neil Mukherjee, Mary Beard and James O'Brien. This week's paper is really a corker. Do check it out. There's a big music section on Chopin and on German nationalism in music and lots more. Next week is an art special, which Thea has not read yet. No. I do have a smock, though. Do you have a smock? I do have a smock. An so maybe I'll, I'll wear smock. I do, yeah. Oh, bring it With in. With pockets and everything. Oh, bring it in. <laughs> we'll maybe do a, vo a video version of the podcast. <laughs> Don't know why I told you this. I know. Well, we'll all be wearing our pretentious smocks next week to do that. <laughs> Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 